we remain silent, why don't we bow our heads for a word of prayer? Father, we come gathered here together, and Father, we are wanting the Word of God to speak to our own souls. And so, Father, that is something that You alone can do. And I pray, Lord, that You would speak today, that You would touch people's hearts, that Your Holy Spirit would be in this place, and may we each be open to the message that Your Word has. We pray these things in Your name. Amen. How many of you have heard before the phrase, silence is golden? Anyone? Silence is golden. And I think that all of us could agree that at times, it is just best to be quiet. Amen? Yes? But if we were honest with ourselves, I think there are situations where the opposite is true. Perhaps there are situations that if you are not silent, or excuse me, if you are silent, then perhaps that silence is in fact irresponsible. Perhaps there are situations in which silence is definitely not the best approach. Let me give you two such instances where I think that being silent is probably not the best thing to do. One of them, imagine that they came up with the cure for cancer. Seems impossible, but they came up with a cure for all cancer. They're missing one ingredient, and you've got it. You're the only person in the entire world that has that one thing. I know it's an impossible situation, but imagine it with me, and imagine that they came up with a cure, they were missing one thing, you had it, but you never said a word. Well, I don't want to inconvenience myself, you say. Well, I, I don't know, flying all the way to Florida to deliver the ingredient, that may cost too much. Could we agree that silence in that situation could be probably not the best approach, yes? Another situation, imagine that your child, son or daughter, is running top speed to the busy street. There's cars running back and forth. And as you're watching your child, you're in the front yard, you have time but you don't say a word, and you allow them to run to the busy street. Each of us could easily say that being silent in that situation is irresponsible, yes? Definitely not the best approach. And I want to suggest this morning, in the light of where we're at in earth's history, in the light of the good news that is before us, in the light of the fact that Jesus truly is coming soon, how can we remain silent? I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 2 Kings. We're going to be taking a look at a Bible story this morning, and that's found in 2 Kings. There should be a Bible in the pew in front of you if you did not have an opportunity to bring your own. 2 Kings, Old Testament, after First and Second Samuel. After 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 2 Kings, and we're going to be beginning this story in verse 24 of chapter 6. 2 Kings chapter 6 and verse 24. Here's what takes place. Verse 24, and it happened after this that Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, gathered all his army and went up and besieged whom? Samaria. 
The king of Syria declared war and besieged Samaria. This was not a local skirmish, but a full-on war. Here, Syria was besieging Samaria. Samaria was the capital city of Israel. If you remember that Israel had already split into two nations. You had the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, and Samaria was the capital city of Israel. And here, Ben-Hadad, in a common military tactic, takes his army and surrounds Samaria with the hopes of forcing them to surrender. They cut off all roads in and out of the city, and thus the food supply in the city began to run out. Of course, Samaria did not have a local Walmart or Trader Joe's, and even if they did, the trucks that carried the supplies and food to these grocery stores, if there's no way to get in and out of the city, eventually food would run out. And that was precisely what was happening. Ben-Hadad's plan was working because Israel, Samaria specifically, was in a very, very serious famine. A, A very, very serious food shortage. So much to the point. Things were so bad. They had run out of so much food that they resorted to almost inhumane measures. Please notice in verse 25, how bad this famine was. 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 25, the Bible says, And there was a great famine in Samaria, and indeed they besieged it, until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and one-fourth of a cab of dove droppings for five shekels of silver. Is anyone else shocked beside myself? Here the Israelites had resorted to eating very biblically unclean foods. God had specifically told the Israelites, listen, stay away from the donkeys. They are not clean meat. And definitely stay away from the sewer. But they were so hungry. Things had gotten so bad in Samaria that they completely ignored all laws and health rules And because of their hunger, resulted in eating these things. Absolutely disgusting, we say. Josephus, the historian, Jewish historian, mentioned that this had happened at another point in time in earth's history after this effect. The siege of Jerusalem by Titus, the Jewish historian Josephus said that some persons were driven to that terrible distress because of the famine as to search the common sewers and dung hills of cattle and eat what they found there. There were such extreme conditions that they resulted to eating very, very extreme things. And it's hard for us to imagine the situation they were in because here in America, it seems we have all the food we want. I'm amazed as I go to grocery stores and I see the aisles of food and I look at the hundreds of heads of lettuce in the grocery or produce aisle. And then just a mile down the street, there's an exact replica of another grocery store. We have a hard time imagining what it would be like to experience this famine. But Samaria, the Israelites, were in the middle of it. But unfortunately, it got much worse than donkey heads and dove droppings. Notice verse 26. 
The Bible says, Then as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him saying, Help my lord, O king. Here the king is on the wall of his city, Samaria. Perhaps he's making rounds. Maybe he's checking to make sure that the siege is going all right. And as he's walking on the wall, an individual sees him up on the wall and says, King, help. And assuming that this individual is requesting food, the king knows that there's a famine going on, assuming that she's going to say, please, I need some food. Notice what he says in verse 27. Without listening to her petition, verse 27, and he said, if the Lord does not help you, where can I find help for you? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? In other words, listen, listen, lady. If God can't help you, I sure can't. If God can't come up with food for you, where am I going to find it? Am I going to go down to the threshing floor, the, the barn where all the food is stored? You know the food's gone there. You want me to go to the wine press and look for, you know Food is gone there. He sarcastically tells the woman, listen, you know all the food sources are gone. What can I do to help you? Again, the Bible portraying the dire situation that Samaria is in. But the king perhaps sees that maybe there's something else this woman wants to say. Maybe he senses that She didn't just want food, and so he listens to her petition. Verse 28, the king said to her, all right, what is troubling you? What's going on? And so this woman, with the ear of her king, gives her request. Verse 28, middle of verse 28, and she answered, O king, this woman said to me, give your son that we may eat him today and we will eat my son tomorrow. Verse 29. So we boiled my son and ate him, and I said to her on the next day, give your son that we may eat him, but she has hidden her son. Mercy. Does that bring shock to anyone here? That they could resort to such measures in that time of famine as eating each other's children. The famine was so terrible The food supply was so long gone that people had resorted to this. And here this individual had come up with an agreement, a pact, with another friend of hers. All right, we'll eat your son today or my son today and your son tomorrow. And as they boil their son, looking to the other woman, all right, now it's your turn, and she hides her son. And it seems to us living in modern 21st century, whoa, that's way over the top. But as you look at Scripture, God had actually warned the Israelites ahead of time that this could take place if they departed from Him. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 28. You can keep your hand there in 2 Kings if you want. We'll go right back. But Deuteronomy chapter 28, God had foresaw what was to take place with the Israelites. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, chapter 28. And here in Deuteronomy 28, God essentially goes through a list of curses. It's not the type of curse that says, well, you do bad, I'm going to do this to you. It's the type of thing where God says, listen, 
If you continue to follow your wicked heart, if you continue to rebel, the natural result of sin is going to be this. If you keep on putting your hand in the fire, you're going to be burnt, God says. And so notice what he tells them in verse 52 of chapter 28. Deuteronomy 28, verse 52. He says, they shall besiege you at all your gates. This is many years before Syria besieged Samaria. They shall besiege you at all your gates until your high and fortified walls in which you trust come down throughout all your land. They shall besiege you at all your gates throughout all your land which the Lord God has given you. God knew that the Israelites, if they continued in persistence in their sin, that cities would come in and besiege them. But then notice verse 53. You shall eat the fruit of your own body, the flesh of your sons and your daughters, whom the Lord God has given you, in the siege and desperate straits in which your enemy shall distress you. God had foresaw the fearful results of transgression. He did everything that divine love and forbearance could do to prevent matters from coming to a point as this. But in speaking to the Israelites, he was not afraid to say, listen, if you keep on sinning willingly, the wages of sin is death. This is the result of transgression. God had warned the Israelites. No doubt, Elisha, the prophet at that point in time, had told the Israelites, this is going to happen. And my friends, as I look at the terrible things that are taking place here, I can't help but say that in a different sort of way, our world is eating their sons and daughters. Our world has gone to such places where they are messing with the wrong things. We see the, the results of transgression in our world today as we see the news, as we see the terrible things that are happening. We know that that is not God's work. And as God is coming back soon and as he pulls back those hands of protection, my friends, sin will continue to get worse. It won't get better. Friends, things will not get better until Jesus comes. Amen? The Bible foretells that. But praise God that he told us ahead of time. Amen? Praise God that he warns us, hey, things are going to get worse before they get better, so hold on to Jesus. Back to 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 6. In verse 30, the king's response to this woman's petition is probably one that we would have. Ah, what do I do? Pulling the hair out of our heads, ripping our clothes. Is this what my city has come to? Notice his response, verse 30, 2 Kings chapter 6. Now it happened when the king heard the words of the woman that he tore his clothes and as he passed by on the wall, the people looked and there underneath he had sackcloth on his body. Wow. The king, out of frustration and anger, I don't believe this was out of repentance. This was not the king saying, ah, Lord, I messed up. This is my fault. This is the king out of, I don't know what else to do. I don't know what else to do, so I'm going to tear my clothes. And the king in his frustration, the king of Israel, Samaria, Joram was his name. Because he doesn't know what else to do, he puts the blame on the only one in front of him, Elisha. Look at verse 31. King Joram said, God do so to me. 
And more also, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on him today. Wow, what a threat. He doesn't know who else to blame, and so he turns the blame on someone else. Dr. Kunanobu, just like you were talking today, here King Joram does the exact same thing. Well, for the longest time, he's tried to brush up Israel's sins, and it's on him as the king. He's tried to brush them up, tried to pile them up, and all the time God's like, hey, I know your heart, Joram. God works with us and works with us, friends, does he not? He's so patient with us. But here Joram, in his frustration and anger, turns the finger, just like we saw in the very beginning with Adam and Eve. That's what happens. We turn the finger, and here Joram turns the finger. It's Elisha's fault. He had to do something, blames it on Elisha. I want to see Elisha's head cut off. Well, Elisha, I love his response. Elisha is calm as a button. And nothing phases him. And look at verse 32. Elisha is sitting in the house. Verse 32, Elisha is sitting in the house, and the elders were sitting with him. Now, that's important. The elders and leaders of the city of Samaria had come to whose house? Elisha's house. And you know, honestly, that says something about God's character, because in the midst of trial and difficulty, the leaders and Elders of that city turned to God for help. They went to Elisha. Elisha, what do we do? Listen, we are up a creek. What are we going to do? Look at all our people. They turned to God for help. And that is why that God sometimes allows trials into our life, because he knows that we'll turn to him for help. Sometimes he allows the devil to push us to our, our knees, because we know on our knees is where true strength lies. And here, the elders of this city Come to Elisha. They're sitting in a circle at Elisha's house. Elisha, what do we do? And continuing in verse 32, and the king sent a man ahead of him, but before the messenger came. So the king Joram sent a messenger to take off the head of Elisha. But before he got there, Elisha said to the elders, do you see how this son of a murder has sent someone to take away my head. He calls Joram the son of a murder. Why would he do that? Joram was the son of Ahab. Joram was the son of Ahab, and Ahab was a murderer. Though it was through his wife Jezebel many times, it was on his hand because he allowed it to happen. And so here he calls Joram the son of a murder. Do you see how King Joram has sent someone to take away my head? Notice verse 32, look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold him fast. Is this not the sound of his master's feet behind him? He basically says, do what all little kids do when their big brother is trying to get them, right? We've done this before. Big brother comes to the door and we put our shoulder on the door and hope that they can't push us back through. That's essentially what Elisha says. Listen, this messenger is going to come. He's going to take off my head, block the door. You know, they stack up the chairs and couches and furniture, you know, in front of that door to make sure that no one can come in. And Elisha even says, I hear the king's feet coming behind him. He knows that the king is doing this out of his frustration. Verse 33, while he was still talking with them, there was the messenger coming down to him. 
And the king said, surely this calamity is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? The king is at wit's end. Listen, God's not doing anything. This is his fault. I'm going to take things into my own hands. And friends, how often we do the same when help is right around the corner. Uh, Man, Joram didn't know that literally help was right around the corner. Within the next 24 hours, this famine was going to be done. And Joram tries to take things in his own hands. And we do the same. We're at wit's end. We say, God, you're not there. You're not doing anything for me. I'm going to take things into my own hands. And if we had just waited a little longer, God would have helped us. We can trust in God, can't we, my friends? And so here Elisha says, chapter 7, verse 1. 2 Kings 7, verse 1, Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, tomorrow about this time, a seah of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. What is he saying? Elisha's saying, within 24 hours, at this time tomorrow, there's not going to be a famine. Barley and flour will be at its regular price. Wow. Within 24 hours, God is going to take care of this famine. There's going to be food on the table. And you can imagine the king and those elders sitting there. What are you talking about? Just a couple hours earlier, Elisha, some woman just came up and said how she boiled her son. Elijah, you go out on the market right now, and right now a donkey's head is for 80 shekels. Uh, Elisha, before this famine even started, a whole donkey, if you wanted to buy him for your field, was a fraction of that cost. Elisha, what are you talking about? And to their eye, as they looked at the situation around them, it was absolutely impossible for that famine to be done, but nothing is impossible for God, amen? And here God says, all right, in 24 hours, I am going to take care of this. And one of the officers sitting there says, no way. I doubt that that can happen. Notice verse 2. An officer on whose hand the king leaned answered, the man of God. He looked Elisha in the eye and said, look, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, could this thing be? In other words, if God opened up the skies and poured rain, maybe to grow food, maybe to take out the army, if God did that still, how could this be? As I was reading that verse, I thought, wow, you know what? That is us. How many times do we doubt the Word of God? And my friends, doubting what God said is what got human beings into trouble in the first place. Adam and Eve doubted that what God said was actually true. And we do the same thing today. The Bible doesn't actually say that keeping the commandments are important. The Bible doesn't really say that the seventh day is the Sabbath. The Bible doesn't really say that Jesus is coming soon. People have been saying that forever. The Bible doesn't really say this and that. We doubt the Word of God. Or we say, God can't save a sinner like me. I've been addicted to alcohol, to gambling for the last 15 years, there's no way that God can change a sinner's heart like mine. I've messed up in my life and I have made mistake time and time again. There's no way that God can forgive someone like me. But friends, that's not true. The word of God says that he can, amen? 
The Bible says that if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from unrighteousness. God can do anything. And my friends, I pray that we can trust that what God says is true. That unlike this officer who doubted that God was not only not able, but that he wasn't willing to take care of the famine, that we would say, God, he's able. He's able. But notice at the end of verse 2, Elijah's, or Elisha's response. Elisha's response at the end of verse 2, and he said, in fact, you shall see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. The man's doubting of God's ability caused him to not experience the blessings. And friends, that is the case today. That John 3.16 is really true. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him, that believes that he has the power to save them, shall have eternal life. But those that doubt God's ability will not experience the blessings. But we don't have to doubt God, do we? Because God is trustworthy. As you look in Scripture time and time again, God proves himself, and he's about to prove himself again. So notice what happens in verse 3. Here is how God takes care of the famine in 24 hours. How in the world does the Lord do it? Look at verse 3. Now there were how many leprous men? Four leprous men at the entrance of the gate. And they said to another, why in the world are we sitting here until we die? If we say, verse 4, we will enter the city, well, listen, the famine's in the city, and we're going to die there. But if we just sit here, we'll die also. Therefore, ah, this is what we should do. Come, let's surrender to the army of the Syrians, and if they keep us alive, we'll live. And if they kill us, we were going to die anyway. Sounds like a pretty smart plan, right? Listen, we're sitting here, and if we just sit here, we're going to die because there's no food. Typically, leprous men had families bringing them food from the city, but that was not taking place because the famine was in the city. So if we stay here, we're going to die. If we go into the city to get food, we're going to die. We might as well go to the Syrians and beg for mercy, and maybe they'll have compassion, but if they don't, we're going to die anyway. That was their thinking. And so with that thinking in mind, well, we might as well try. We might as well try. Verse 5 tells us about their action. And they rose, the leprous men, at what time of day? That's important. Remember that. They rose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. And when they had come to the outskirts of the Syrian camp, to their surprise, no one was home. Interesting. Here they come. It's twilight. The sun is setting. The sky is going from a blue to a dark blue. The air is getting crisp. I don't know how long it was, but they walked some distance to the outskirts of the camp, expecting to hear the thousands of Syrian army men. The noise, the laughter, the shouting, the jeering, like any pagan camp would be. But all they hear is the occasional hee-haw of a donkey, and maybe some horses, or maybe some tent flaps, whipping back and forth in the wind. And they approach more closely, and as they look around, they notice that all the people are gone. Wait, wait a second, what, what happened? Notice verse 6, what the Lord did. 
For the Lord had caused the army of the Syrians to hear the noise of chariots and the noise of horses and the noise of a great army. And so they said to one another, look, the king of Israel has hired another army against us, the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to come and attack us. So verse 7 says, therefore, the Syrians arose and fled at twilight and left the camp intact, their tents, their horses, and their donkeys, and they fled for their lives. Wow. God can work miracles, yes? He can do anything. And the Syrians are there in their army, and they hear chariots, they hear horses, they hear an army coming to attack them. They hear, so they think, the Egyptians, the Hittites are coming. The Israelites hired them to come and get us. And they run out of there, leaving everything behind. And notice, at what time of day did the Syrians leave their camp? Twilight. What time of day did the leprous men leave the gate? Twilight. Just at the time that the leprous men were leaving their gate, the Syrians were leaving their camp. Wow. Isn't God's timing perfect, brothers and sisters? God can time anything that he wants, and just as those leprous men are coming to the camp, man, the Syrians are out of there. But here is where perhaps it gets serious. Verse 8, and it doesn't seem serious at first, but I want us to notice this lesson for us today. Verse 8, when these lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, they went into one tent and ate and drank. They carried it from silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried some from there also and went and hid it. They did what any starving four men would do. Go into the tents. Wow, dude, check this out. Man, you see what he left? Wow, look at all these snigger bars or whatever they leave in their tents. Man, look at this over here. Wow, there's food. And obviously, since they haven't been eating for a long time, their stomachs are probably smaller. So maybe they're stuffing themselves, but throwing up at the same time, I don't know. But they are gorging themselves with food, taking the gold and the silver and everything they they find. And they're having a great time because today was a good day of good news. They had found the bread, my friends. They had found the solution to their hunger. And I want you to notice what a Bible commentary says about this point. Inside the city, men, women, and children were starving. But all this time, the lepers were interested only in themselves. By allowing their countrymen to perish within reach of plenty, the lepers would bring the blood of the dying upon their grasping hands and greedy hearts. The lepers finally came to see that their good fortune had brought them a responsibility as well as an opportunity. Wow. And you may think, well, hey, they're just doing what anyone would do. But the Bible paints a picture that these leprous men went into that camp and all they were thinking about were themselves. And all the while, can you imagine as they're stuffing themselves with food, their fellow human beings, the people that God himself had created, their brothers and sisters and mothers and aunts and uncles and family and friends, 
within reach, we're perishing. Within reach of plenty, we're perishing. Friends, I can't help but think that we're doing the same today. That while we are here, here in a beautiful church, here with a knowledge of Jesus that has the power to save, amen, that all the while our countrymen are perishing. And I want you to notice in 2 Kings chapter 7, verse 9, that the story doesn't end there. 2 Kings 7, verse 9, the lepers said to one another, we are not doing right. This day is a day of good news, and we remain silent. Our kinsmen, our family, our friends, our people are dying of hunger and starvation just across the way. Just back there, our countrymen have no clue that there is a mountain of food within walking distance from their gates. Can you imagine if that entire city perished and they never knew that the good news was right outside their door? Can you imagine if that entire city perished and they never knew that bread was right outside their gates? And these leprous men realize that their good fortune brought a responsibility, that this is a day of good news. We remain silent. This is not right. And so they did the right thing. They went and told the king. Amen? And interesting enough that uh, Jewish historians believe that these four leprous men were Gehazi and his three sons. Gehazi was the servant of Elisha. And if you go back to the story of Naaman, uh, uh, Gehazi uh, was greedy, and he took all of the goods that King Naaman was, or the officer Naaman was giving them, and because of that, God gave him leprosy. And here, most likely, is Gehazi, and initially he has that same selfish heart. Initially he has that same greedy mentality, but this time he does something different, amen? This time he says, you know what, we're not doing right, we need to go and tell the city, Friends, how can we remain silent? How can we remain silent? This day is a day of good news. Jesus has died on a cross for our sins. We know that He is returning soon. He has given us peace in our hearts. He's provided a way out of the famine called sin. And just like Elisha foretold that God would take care of everything in a short amount of time, in the same way, God is going to take care of everything. Amen? And in fact, He has already given the food to satisfy our hunger. God is the answer to life's problems. He is the solution to life's perplexity. And he is the explanation to life's question. God is the way out of this mess that we are in. And just like the Israelites, friends, we're resorting today in our world to debased measures because of the famine. We're essentially eating each other. Wars, violence, killing, cancer, natural disasters. ISIS, gun shootings, divorce. You look at what's happening in our world today. And as I look at all that, my friends, I see, you know what? They're looking for love in all the wrong places. 
They're looking for love in all the wrong places. They're looking to find fulfillment and meaning in people and houses and toys and relationships and things, anything to meet their fulfillment. And the whole time, God is the only one. And our fellow countrymen have no clue that there is food right outside of their door. And as I think, my friends, about this beautiful church, I am encouraged that our church members are sharing the gospel. Amen? I'm encouraged that we're sharing our faith. And this is not a message to point our finger, but rather a message to me, to us, to take an honest look and say, am I being silent or am I not? You know, someone once said that Christianity is one beggar telling another beggar where he found bread. That's all it is. That's all we're doing. We're a sinner, a beggar like me is just telling someone else, hey, I know where to find bread. I, I know where you can find satisfaction. I know how you can get out of this famine, and it's called a second coming, my friends. Jesus is the only boat on which we can ride. And do we realize Do we realize the privilege that we have as Christians and as Seventh-day Adventists? The blessing that we have in knowing the Word of God. The blessing that we have in the spirit of prophecy. The blessing that we have in understanding the times in which we're living in. Friends, we forget that. And there are people all around us that have no clue that bread is right side outside of their door. And I want to challenge us today to not remain silent. As Pastor Sam preached a few weeks ago in a powerful sermon, we can't do business as usual. It is time to preach the message loud and clear. How can we remain silent? And can I even go as far to suggest that Jeff Harper's silence in the midst of good news and the midst of the times in which we're living in Could I even go as far to say that that is irresponsible? I think each one of us here can honestly say, man, I need to not in the name of, well, I don't want to offend anyone, be silent. In the name of, well, I'm embarrassed, be silent. In the name of, well, they may not like the message that I have to share, be silent. Friends, can you imagine if those four leprous men said, well, that's a long walk back to camp. You know, we're pretty tired. Well, you know what? I want to keep this all to myself. Of course not. Can you imagine someone as your child running to the street, remaining silent? Of course not. And here we are, if I could use this analogy, spiritually gorging ourselves on wonderful food. Amen? I mean, it is an immense privilege to know the God that we know. It's an immense privilege to understand Daniel and Revelation. We are spiritually fat, so to speak. And all the time, there's people that are dying of hunger in the world around us. And I challenge us, friends, I challenge Jeff Harper, myself, to tell other people, hey, I know where to find bread. Hey, I know where there's a Savior. His name is Jesus, and he can help you. Christianity is one beggar telling another beggar where he found bread. Friends, is that your desire? Is that your desire to say, you know what, I must not remain silent any longer. I want to share the gospel 
with those around me. And if that is your desire, just by a raise of hands. If you want to raise your hands, say, you know what, I don't want to remain silent anymore. Invite the pianist to come up, and we're going to be singing our final hymn, I Love to Tell the